Dotnet Rocks, episode 1272, with guest Kathleen Dollard. Recorded Thursday, March 17th, 2016. Ooh, hey, it's .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And as we are here three times a week for your enjoyment, uh, we haven't been recording a whole lot lately, but this is 1272. Kathleen Dollard is here. We're going to have a good time talking about C Sharp with her. How you been, my friend? Oh, uh, you know, no rest for the wicked, but uh, I'm not complaining. The house is slowly coming back together into one piece, so oh, that's good. I'm excited about that. Very good. Yeah, it's it's excellent. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the new lighting system. We're going to have to do shows about the new lighting system. Yes, we are. And we I've got a geek out uh, idea for you as well. We'll have to talk about that offline. But enough of that chit chat, because uh, I've got something spectacular for Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, man. I'm ready to be spectacular. Uh, this is a feature of Visual Studio 2015 that you can't really Google or um, Bing or I haven't really found anything online as far as how it works and how to, how to do this. But I did come across uh, somebody who shall remain nameless, who mm-hmm. sent me this little tip. So it's the report a problem uh, feature of visual studio 2015. Check this out. It will record your steps to reproduce a problem and then generate a report that includes screenshots uh, mouse clicks, keystrokes, uh, dumps, all of that stuff and send it to Microsoft. But not only that, you can actually see the document that it creates if you hack into it a little bit. So the blog post is at 1272.pwop.me. And here's basically the gist of it. Go to help, send feedback, report a problem. There's an option on the dialog box that comes up that says record your actions to reproduce the issue. Nice. And then you hit the start recording button. You go through all of the stuff that you would normally do to reproduce. And you can see as it's recording, when you click, this little little red concentric circles happens where your clicks are so that you can see that you're doing that. So hit stop recording. Another dialog box pops up with a submit button. But before you hit submit, go to your local app data folder, which is percent local app data percent slash temp slash mm-hmm. Microsoft, slash VS Feedback Collector. And then there's a feedback folder, like feedback zero, feedback one, sort by date, click the latest one. There's a zip file in there that starts with repro steps. Double click it. There's an MHT file inside. You double click that, comes up in Internet Explorer with all the recorded steps and all wow. the data. How cool That's is pretty that? cool. There is one caveat. It, if you have multiple screens or whatever, it takes pictures of your entire system. So, if oh, you so have it could any, be huge. So let's just say if there's anything you don't want Microsoft to see on your screen, minimize it. Yeah. Or close it. Be- before you do the recording. Before you do the recording. That would be wise. Isn't that cool? It's very neat, man. This is because there's a bunch of there's the whole frown mechanism and it's like lots of different ways to do this stuff. I did not know about this. Oh, yeah. And lots of lots of system data. It, it sends a, a memory dump as well. It's pretty amazing. It's very reproducible. Yep. That's cool, man. Nice find. Yes. And has to do with uh, programming. 
<laughs> Always Weird. good for better no framework. Yeah. What do you what do you know about that? Yeah. Okay. HTTP colon slash slash twelve seventy two dot pop dot me M E. Right. Who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment off of Kathleen's last show. That was eleven ninety nine, the one we did back in October twenty fifteen. We were talking about Python of all things. Mm. You know, because she gets around. Yeah. And this comment comes from Andrew Coretta, who says, Hi, guys, this was an awesome podcast. Just like Kathleen, I've been developing more and more in Python these days. Mm. The transition from C Sharp to Python was challenging. However, the biggest advantage we have is Visual Studio. Right. The podcast missed the opportunity to mention PTVS. That's Python Tools for Visual Studio. PTVS offers deep functionality, including IntelliSense, debugging, testing, PIP integration, and much more. Installing it couldn't be easier as it's included with Visual Studio 2015. It just doesn't install by default. During the installation, you just have to select custom settings and select PTVS, and it allows a .NET developer to leverage the skills they already have so they can focus on learning the Python syntax. Just be sure to enable view white space characters and watch out for four spaces instead of tabs, because mm. that matters in Python. PTVS is a great addition to Visual Studio and a must-have for any .NET developer transitioning to Python. Thanks. And include the link to it, which I will include in the show notes. Great. So, cool. Andrew, thank you so much for bringing that to our attention. .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of the social media. Because we post every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there, we'll send you a mug. You know... Something in the back of my mind tells me I might have talked about that on a Better Know Framework episode. It's possible. But I don't yeah. think we talked to, about it with uh, Kathleen, as the as the commenter points out. Yeah. Well, uh, you can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And send us tweets. <laughs> and that's all you're going to say about that, huh? We're not eating them for lunch. Psych. We're not flossing our cat with them. You know, we're not using them to build cottage cheese sculptures. None of those things. We do all of those things and more. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> all right. Well, now let's welcome Kathleen Dollard back to .NET Rocks. Kathleen loves to code and loves to talk about code. Along the way, she's an architect, a manager, a teacher, a writer, a speaker, and hopefully still a fun person. She's written tons of articles, a book, and spoken around the world. She's the director of engineering for ROI Code, previously Real, R-E-A-L, and has videos in both the Pluralsight and Wintelect Now libraries. Catch her this spring at Dev Intersection in Orlando and Software Design and Develop Conference in London. Welcome back, Kathleen. Hi, how are you doing today? Doing great. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and you're one of the... I would say uh, there's only a handful of guests that make my brain hurt when we interview them, and you're one of them. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to do that. <laughs> oh, that's a good thing. That's a good okay. thing. Okay. You know, you have to go back and listen a couple of times, and that's a, not a bad thing for us either. Okay. More, well, we, we register more hits that way. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's That works. Yeah. Yeah. So, how's yeah. everything going in the world of Roslyn and C Sharp and all that? Oh, man, it's going great. And this big experiment is just really coming to fruition. And it's really exciting. So I almost feel guilty doing a show on like C sharp and giving you like sneak peeks into C sharp seven, because, you know, I, I think we ought to put the link to the design notes into the show because everybody can watch, everybody can comment. It's totally, you know, out there in the open. And that has just been a super fun 
fun, exciting process. Well, we actually do have a link to those notes, which are on GitHub, uh, the Roslyn issues, and that's at 1272notes.pwop.me. M-E. So that's an easy way. You can just listen. If you're listening, you can go there now, or you can just visit .netrocks.com and check it out from there. So this site has the current list of issues. Well, it's not so much right. Yeah, right now, we don't quite have a clear list of issues just yet. Um, I think that if they don't get one up soon, I'll probably uh, get my blog kicked off again and, and get it up there. But uh, there is definitely discussions of the issues. So if you look at the headers, you're going to see what the features are coming. And I'll help summarize that today because I think that it's nice to get it in a in kind of a combined summary, simplified way, as well as being able to look at the details. So it's something that's super geeky, like pattern matching positional parameters are are complicated, and there's ways to do it, and uh, figuring out how this API works when by nature C-sharp has to understand everything only at compile time because it doesn't really get to weigh in at at uh, runtime. So all these little tiny details can get kind of overwhelming. But the big picture you can get if you kind of just step back and, and look at the headings. And, of course, I'll talk about that today and try to make it a uh, little bit simpler. For so, so we aren't talking about C-sharp 7 here, are we not? Or is the t- Oh, no, no. It, <laughs> yeah, right. No, no, I'm talking about C-sharp 7. Did you want to talk about C-sharp 6? I can do that, no, no, too. No, 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 But I guess what I'm saying is it's not just C-sharp, but it's VB and all the other languages oh, that go yeah. along with this version of Roslyn. What are we calling this? Okay, so uh, I've only heard it called C-sharp 7 and Visual Basic must be 15. Okay. Um, I think I've got that number right. Uh, and yes, there are both languages. Um, as before, there's a certain amount of things that are spearheaded first on C sharp. Yeah. There'll be a few things that get spearheaded first on Visual Basic. And as far as I know so far, I, I don't know that we're going to get F sharp into Roslyn in this round. Uh, so right now, Roslyn is just C sharp and VB. And it's so hard to know because we don't really have boxes of product anymore. But when, if you go install Visual Studio 2015 today, are you getting the latest stuff? Are you getting the latest safe stuff? Is it constantly updating? What, what what happens when you install it? You know, that's a great question because it is changing a lot behind the scenes. But what's actually going out is the stable. It's C-sharp 6 right now. Mm-hmm. Uh goes out and you can actually back. You can use the older uh, rules, language rules. Uh, you can't use older compilers with Visual Studio 2015, but mm. you can use older language rules. Um, hmm. but you don't get C sharp seven unless you go out and specifically download it because you want to be out on the bleeding edge and you want to be in that GitHub open source, you know, whole world where you're trying to build, you know, build a whole compiler on your own. Most people won't do that. Very few people will, but it's still interesting to see what's coming down the pike. Now we are kind of up, we're getting kind of scheduling wise. Um, you know, there's, you know, there's no announcements. But right. there's, we're kind of kind of getting scheduling wise where sometime uh, coming up here, we might expect another uh, update based on what they've previously announced as their likely cadence. And, and that'll be a new version of Visual Studio uh, 2015, I would expect, whatever comes next. Yeah. But that's not going to have C Sharp 7. C Sharp 7 is not baked yet. Well, it's just in the design stage. And, and I realize you may not be the correct spokesman for Microsoft on this, but you might know the answer. It seems like with Windows 10, I don't know if you've, Think what you think about this, Richard, but with uh, Windows 10 anyway, updates just sort of happen, right? Whereas 
if if updates just sort of happen to Visual Studio, I think I might be upset about that, you know, because I want control over what versions of APIs and languages and things that I have. How do you foresee them dealing with that? Well, there's a little notes, little messages thing up in the upper right of your Visual Studio window that has numbers on it. And most people probably just think that that's their best lottery number or something. Mm. But that's the messages that Microsoft is sending. And that's where updates are going to appear. Do you, and that's I, where they appear I, right now. In other words, do you think that we will have a new version of Visual Studio to correspond to a new version of C Sharp and VB? Or, I mean, I guess that's why I'm asking. Oh, I think I think we'll get updates to Visual Studio well before we see new versions of the languages. The languages are going to cycle slower, and I think they've announced that. Um, I don't well, think that's any big secret because they're aiming for something like a rough quarterly release on Visual Studio. They, that's a previous announcement they've made. And the languages are going to continue to be, I don't know, I think year, 18 months. That's just kind of the, the cadence they've always done that at. And it requires deep thinking to get the languages right and throwing things out there and having, you know, the hundreds of people that do watch that pretty closely beat it up and yell a lot and scream at each other. And from all that, we get good answers. But it's a pretty tedious process to get through new language features. I'm looking at the second quarterly release of Visual Studio, which was only a release candidate at the beginning of March 2016. So it should be, it, it probably won't be out by the time this show comes out, but shortly after that, I imagine in April, we'll see the, the full release of this. And there are language updates as long, along with tooling updates. So they are doing stuff here, but you know, the, the question so those, is, is there, those are, are gonna, we going to declare a new version of Studio? At or are we just going to make it more obvious, right? I mean, when you update, when you upgrade Windows, let's say, and I'm, I know this is a bad comparison because it's a consumer product, but, um, you know, the, the whole screen goes black and it says, please wait while we uh, change your system. Like it's a monumental, you know, it's a monumental change. And I'm just thinking it's such a big change from, isn't it? From C sharp six to seven and VB 14 to 15 that uh, there should be a little more, um, uh, I don't know, how should we say, hitting us over the head with it and more right. are you sure buttons? <laughs> oh, it will. It will. And and so um, a couple of things on that. They they are doing fixes to the compilers and they're always doing little things and, mm. and, and tweaking the language with every time they get the chance. But the big stuff, you know, and a new... Uh, C Sharp 7 or Visual Basic 15, that's a, a big thing. Right. Um, that's going to come out with lots and lots of fanfare. Yeah. Uh, it's going to come out. Good. Uh, it has always before, uh, historically, I, and I can only assume it's true in the future, come out with a major release of Visual Studio as well, because the compilers go with the version of Visual Studio. Yeah, that's that's sort of what I figured. It's just that, you know, they the the cadence is different now and sort of the way things are updated are different sort of company wide so i was just wondering if you thought that was going to uh, you know continue down trickle down to us visual studio people well i i think that it will definitely trickle to visual studio we'll see some cool things in visual studio um and f sharp is on a fairly fast cadence but the types of changes that c sharp is looking at in 7 they really do need to get thought out in excruciating detail and mm. how much effort can go into whether something is a parentheses or a square bracket or a comma or a uh, asterisk. It's just, it's just for people that don't watch languages and haven't for years, 
uh, the degree of, of effort that goes into those decisions is pretty overwhelming, and it, and it is a tedious process to get that feedback. I really like the design notes because you can see the thinking going on. Like I'm, I'm looking cool? at the latest design notes off of the GitHub Roslyn depository. These are from February 29 of 2016. This mm. is uh, issue nine, 9330. And you, it's Mads. It's Mads yeah. writing out in detail, yep. you know, positional deconstruction. Yeah. Just like, okay, so this is the order we're going to do things. This is why this would work this way. And he's just looking for feedback on it. Right. And and if you look at the I, – I, I don't suggest you do it right now, but if you look through the comments on that, uh, there are several things that are covered in that particular uh, post. And there is massive, massive conversation about positional parameters and whether we should even do them. Um, so that's one of those icky little details that, uh, if not done right, can be – you know, can screw up the language and we don't want to do that. So the other thing that's really great in that is the one just before that, the outline. Uh, that's the outline of a demo that they put together to do the kind of summary that, you know, I'll try to, if we keep talking about C-sharp 7, I can do a little bit of summarization, but that's a really good read. Uh, the one that's just before that, that I think Neil Gaff, I think that's Neil Gafter's post. Yeah. Um, and that outline is a really good overview of a number of things that are going on. Including one that's going to be unpopular, I'm afraid, which is a good idea, but people aren't going to understand it, which is local functions. And I think it's so just yeah. a phrase, the name is going to scare people. Uh, but local functions are cool from an efficiency point of view. So I saw a post on Bill Wagner's blog about them, and he's very much, you know, don't kill me, don't shoot me. I know some people are not going to like this, others will. I'm just saying this may be, as you're reading this, it may be a feature of C Sharp, it may not be a feature, but here's what it is, here's what it looks like, discuss. Which I love, yeah. I love that, yeah. that that you're seeing, yeah. and, the, and the discussion, you guys, on 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 this uh, C Sharp Design Notes catch-up edition goes on and on and on. I thought it was all the blog, but it no, the discussion, yes. it's amazing. Yes, and those are, I, I know a lot of the people that are involved in that discussion, and these aren't like somebody off the street. These no. are people that are deeply invested in language design, care passionately about C Sharp, and, uh, you know, I've got one or two in there, and then I kind of give up and walk away and think I've made my say, but there's people that really go to the mat over their issues, and it's it's really, it's awesome uh, to see the energy that goes into the whole process, everything around the process of doing this in the open. I'm just looking for the phrase uh, Nazi. Phrase what? <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm looking for for Codwin's law. When, who got called a Nazi uh, in this conversation? Oh ah. no, I think it'll go on forever. <laughs> no, it doesn't because if you if you it it never gets into that you're an idiot most of the time. I haven't read I haven't read all of these. As you can see, there's hundreds and hundreds of them. Uh, but yeah, it's I wouldn't suggest everybody take the investment to read all of that. Although if you want to skim it. It isn't interesting uh, to see what kind of feedback they're getting and to see if, you know, you kind of think your point of view is getting represented if you have the time to do it. But it's uh, the, seeing what the process looks like. And um, I know Mads has on a number of occasions said that, you know, you're seeing what the making the sausage looks like. Uh, yeah, because this is how sausage in the is past, made. In the past, this just kind of came to us. And, you know, I think that... Uh, you know, Anders is still, you know, he's still there. Anders hasn't gone away. But I think kind of people thought that Anders kind of went to a mountain and got stone tablets. And <laughs> that's never been the process. It's always been a very intense process. Hmm. But it's been first just internal. 
and then internal and special customers like MVPs. And now it's everybody. And I just think that's awesome. Yeah. These were the debates that always went on. You just weren't able to see them quite as easily. Right. You couldn't see them at all. I mean, when I first went to a language design session, I was told that I wasn't supposed to tell anybody I was going to Seattle, much less that I was going to a meeting on campus. And so we've come a long way since the early days when everything was like super behind closed doors and top secret. And now, man, it's awesome to have anybody who wants to able to be part of this process. Yeah, it's, it is very different. Yeah, the so- we've all done this, the software design review. All yeah. very much in secret in a, you know, basically unmarked room somewhere on the Redmond campus. You, yeah. And you go in and you don't come out until you can get some consensus around some ideas. Right. Well, and, and you know, I, I have had a lot of fun in those and I feel very lucky that I've been part of those processes for years. But I'm so excited that it's no longer like my little and, and a small number of people, you know, my little world. Mm-hmm. It's, mm. it's the whole world. And that is just fantastic. Can't say enough good things about Microsoft for having the nerve to step out there in all the ways they are right now. And just do this in public. I mean, that's the the, the brass tacks. Right. And it's right. It, and there's lots of lots of the comments are from Microsoft people, folks like Mads and Neil and, and Cyrus and so forth, but lots of them aren't. So they're really good. And I'm glad you pointed that out because this is not just they put this post up and walk away. They're intensely involved with these conversations and clarifying their positions because they are, you know, they're deep in this. They're 40, 50 hours a week in these issues. And we come in and see a blog post and have an opinion. Obviously, they know more than we do. And them coming back and continuing this conversation in those notes, you know, day after day after day is just they're putting energy into getting this feedback and having people understand what's going on. It's just Mm -hmm. awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, and I I think it's got to be useful for them as well from the point of view of if, if you can't explain it well enough that an impassioned person can understand and, and sort of buy in, then maybe it hasn't been thought through fully. Yeah, absolutely. So I really want to get into this conversation about these uh, new features and things because I think yeah. we've talked about how awesome Microsoft is right now for and and this GitHub uh, repository. It's amazing. So we're going to do the draw a little bit early. So Richard, you know what time it is now? It must be that happy time again. You know it. It's time to define the term debate. I always thought that's what they used to catch the fish. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> It's actually time to give away a Music to Code By complete collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Music to Code By is a set of 25-minute Pomodoro-sized, quiet, and groovy instrumentals, scientifically designed to promote focus. It'll get you into a state of flow and keep you there. And .NET Rocks fans are being more productive with Music to Code By. Check out what all the fuss is about. Go to musictocodeby.net. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Sam Monkey from London. Congratulations, Sam. And Golf clap for you, sir. I pronounced it Monkey, but it's M-U-N-C-K-E, and I was just guessing that it was Monkey. Either that or he's probably heard that one before. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's actually pronounced Smith. Yeah, that's right. Well, Sam knows who he is anyway. And uh, if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, 
answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we'd like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to sign up to win. Kathleen, now it's your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Well, I'm actually buying a house, so I would have a call with Richard to find out what I most wanted because I couldn't get <laughs> everything. Would you have, I don't Would you have don't two know. cats in the yard? What? Would you have two cats in the yard? I don't Was think life so. life really so hard? Now everything what? is easy? No. <laughs> it's a very fine house. I'm just saying. Oh, okay. Now I think I'm catching up. Um, and it's so, not going to cost you $5,000 to call me, but the stuff we talk about is going to cost much more than that. That's what I said. Then you're going to help me decide because I can't have it all. And I don't know whether I would go for, uh, you know, I'm I'm not like a super big security person, but it would be kind of nice to be in London and know who was knocking on my front door and be able to unlock oh, sure. the door for them. Yeah. So, so that, you know, that, so I don't like, I'm not, you know. Like, oh, gosh, you know, I need I need to be protected. I would like some information about my house. So that would be awesome. And I would also really like some high end lighting. And yeah. so uh, those are the two areas. I don't I couldn't do it all. But uh, that's how I would spend five thousand dollars on tech right now. All right. Yes, I have been happily obsessing over lighting for the past few weeks. So much nice that we're going to have to do a geek out on it. Probably. Oh, I, cool. I look forward to that. So suffice it to say that you are a DC convert, right? With I, LED I am lighting. now, but yeah. wait till I finish. Let me let me get it done, and then we'll know for sure. All right, I'm a believer. <laughs> now I just need to have my faith validated. All right, good enough. So where do we start with uh, your favorites? Your favorite new features here, Kathleen? Local functions. Well, you know they actually group pretty pretty well, and I think we had to start real quick with the one we just threw out because. Um, I think we gave just enough information to be confusing. Mm. So a, a local function you could think of as a version of a Lambda. That's the way I think about it. And to me, it's not scary if you think about it as a, uh, is a, is a kind of a Lambda. It's not actually, uh, implemented at all like a Lambda. So you won't hear very many people say that. People are kind of, you know, cringe when they hear me say that. But if you think of a function inside another function, that like harkens back to, code with a lot of go-tos or something. And so it doesn't sound like it would be very good. But what's actually happening with a local function is it's going to fill some of the same functions as a Lambda would, some of those same things. But because it's implemented so differently, there's not the overhead of a Lambda. So Lambdas are a little bit expensive. They're expensive in the way of it, in terms of the way to run code. There's very few other ways to just run code that are quite as expensive as a Lambda. So local functions will allow us to do certain types of functional programming without that overhead. So I'm actually pretty up on them, uh, but I do understand that they're going to be something that if not explained well, people are going to be like, oh, no, what ugly code will ensue? Right. And I think we just have to work on that. But um, moving on from that, I think the, the next area of interest is better support for immutability. Mm. And so we like immutable objects, don't we? Sure. Yeah. And this is what F sharp people keep telling us is wrong with C sharp, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I so, used to say, yeah, yeah, we call them constants. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, not so that simple, though. Yeah, no, it's not. But there's two areas where we can, where uh, I mean, the team. Obviously, I say we just is like the whole world, but you know mm -hmm. th that the 
usage of immutable objects can become better. And one of them is how they're created. So right now you have to do a constructor. There's really not any other option. And constructors can just get messy, particularly if you have uh, default values and you don't want to pass everything. And it's just there's constructors are just an imperfect way to do it. So the proposal for that is that you can do object initialization just like you can with classes on immutable um, objects. So, uh, so with the whole immutability support that's coming in and um, the things that we got in C Sharp 6 being further built on, being able to do that initial assignment from the object initializer in the calling code. Mm. So that will just make for better use of immutable uh, objects. And so the other thing is even more exciting. It's called WITH, W-I-T-C-W-I-T-H, WITH. Right. And so here it's like if you have a a immutable object and it's relatively complex and you want to create a new immutable object with everything in the old one but a couple of things changed. So right now that is a pain in the neck. Right, because it's all about creating custom constructors and then – trying to do some sentries and things like that. It's not fun. It's not fun. And we've seen this because Rosin provides with methods to make it work because otherwise you'd go crazy inside a Rosin that's all immutable. And this pulls this up to the level of a language construct. So the, when you create a new one, you can say, well, use this one as a, use this one to start with, use all of those values, except the ones that I'm providing right now. And those would be offered in the width. So that's the proposal for making better support for, you know, kind of effectively copy with change is sort of what the width actually is. And the word width is kind of hard to say clearly, but it looks nice on the page. So the code will look good. I remember width from like VB when we were assigning, you know, multiple values, different properties. Yeah, this is, this is different. This is only on the constructor. You only get to set it once. Not it's the same thing not, at all. Not the same thing, but yeah, I remember that too, Richard. It was uh, actually a very, very cool feature. It it was definitely a cool feature, but this is definitely same word, different feature. Yeah. Yeah. And just a diff- and, and solving a different problem. Right. So the the other area that we can talk about, which is kind of the big area, is pattern matching. So mm. people that have done certain functional languages, including F sharp, are going, oh fun. You know, pattern matching, we know all about that. But folks that haven't are probably pretty mystified as to what the big deal is about pattern matching, why we care, why Microsoft is investing in it. Um, So it's kind of worth, I think, looking at what the problem is. And I've thought a little bit about how to do this on the radio because it's going to be a little tricky. But if you imagine that you have a person class and you inherit from that students and teachers. And I'm deliberately picking an example that's in those design notes so that people can go back and help make sense of what I'm saying uh, at that point. So right now, if you have a person and you want to find out if it's a student or a teacher, you have to use something like an as and then check for null and then do what you want to do from there. So this is not only a couple lines of code. It, it doesn't come out looking very intentional. It doesn't express what you're actually trying to do. So if instead you could have a way to say in an if statement, if my person is a student, then assign it to this variable and return true. And that's basically the simplest form of pattern matching. 
And so your if statement is now one line and it reads, if you were to read it out loud, it would make sense in terms of the, the action you're actually performing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Well, now we get to make it harder. <laughs> so, of course we do. Glad, yeah, let's make it harder. Okay. So now we, to extend that further, you'd like to be able to say, well, if it's a person and it's a student, but the student has a high GPA, now we want to do something. And so the current syntax, which is, um, there's a couple of syntaxes that floated on this is to have curly brackets and then a, um, a, a property and a property value. So you could say, uh, if, uh, P, uh, is, if P is student, space S is how you get that second variable in there, the student variable, and then a curly bracket, and then say GPA is greater than or equal to 3.5, close curly bracket, close parentheses. Hmm. And so now you can specify more than just it's the type of student. You can also specify something about it. Still with me? Yep. All right. So now you can imagine a series of if statements that say, if this is a student and they have a high GPA, do this. If this is a student, but now we've, if we've gotten to that, they don't have a high GPA, do this other thing. And now if it's a teacher, do this other thing. And so you can wind up being able to have a very, very readable set of of code around something that previously would have a lot of null checks, a lot of, uh, it would have been way harder to read and understand the intent of the code. So that's the core right. of how pattern matching makes our lives better. It, it's a nice feature to bring into the language. Are we bringing C sharp a little closer to F sharp with all of these sort of functional features? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're so happy those people are out there mm. uh, helping to shine lights on some. It, it's really cool that, that F sharp is out there showing what works on the .NET framework with the typing rules that are intrinsic to the way our world works and are doing that in a language that pushes towards functionality all the time. So absolutely. Because you can't under the hood really change how the CLR treats, say, mutability. It's all effectively discipline that we, we you know, treat values as immutable. That's correct. And the language is doing things to help us be more immutable mm, in right. making it easier I mean, to have read to have read-only properties is what it, we are doing. It's the same in F sharp though, right? Because F sharp has immutability, yet it's the same CLR. So that's a perfect example of where, where we're going with C sharp. Right, exactly. Exactly. So we're we're moving that direction and C sharp is showing us good ways to get there. So the the pattern matching doesn't stop there. I, I wanted to start with kind of a simple case and one that people could go just kind of go uh go look up. They're doing a couple of other really cool things with it, one of which is to extend our switch statement. So right now you say switch and you pass a variable. And then you have a series of case statements, which are constants. Well, it turns out that a constant is the simplest form of a pattern match. There is none simpler. And so by generalizing mm. the idea of what comes in a case statement, they've been able to say case, and again, it's the same type of syntax, case P, which was our person variable, case person student. So now we know it's a student. 
within the case statement to actually have the word when stuck out at the end of the case statement. So it's going to read something like case, P is student. You could assign that to a variable if you wanted. When the GPA is greater than 3.5. So this case happens when both it's a student and the GPA is greater than 3.5. So it's just a beautiful syntax there on that case statement. And it's completely backwards compatible because they've just generalized our current concept. Okay. Interesting. What else we got? We got that. Yeah. And then so we got that going first. <laughs> yeah. So we got that. That's pretty cool. And then the last one is a match. And so as soon as you start thinking about, wow, we could do this, you know, we could, we could do these cool switch statements that are really nice. Now it won't take long before you go, wait a minute. I want that in an expression. I want that returning a value. I don't want to just do that as a set of statements but I want to do that as an expression that returns a value. Now, it's a little harder to find this example, but it's so cool. It is in the design notes, but you have to go back about four design notes to find it. So the word is match. And so we have a match and a match is going to be an expression that returns something. Now, instead of students, let's have a series of geometric shapes. Mm -hmm. And each geometric shape is going to calculate its area in a different way. So all of these geometric shapes are going to inherit from something. So you have a shape variable. Mm -hmm. And now you have a match where first you see whether it's a line. And a line has no area, so you can just return zero. Now let's see if it's a rectangle. If it's a rectangle, then you're going to return the height times the width. Because within the match, you can cast it to a rectangle. And therefore, you can do the math specifically on what a rectangle is. Mm. So you can say if this shape is a rectangle... And then you just pass the, the fact it's a rectangle onto a new variable. You can say r, which is the rectangle, dot height times r dot width, and you've just returned the area. So you can, in about 10 lines of code, you can calculate the area for different geometric shapes right there in place, right where you can look at all of your, uh, all of your functions and what you're doing. Now, that's just, I want to point out that's just a sample because you'd probably give the area as a property to whatever object you're using. But there's other cases, if you could imagine something like a tax calculation or something about employees or something, something else where the, it's logical to have that calculation in place in this match statement that then can just be 10 or 15 lines of code that's doing the calculations and getting it back where you need it. So that's pattern matching. Okay. Yeah. All good stuff. Yeah. And it also gets into this whole idea of your return would depend on the result. Like it, that's, you know, suddenly I really need generics. Yeah. I haven't thought about generics in, in, uh, in connection with this yet. I'm sure they have, mm. but I have yeah. not yet seen a, a, an example working around generics. So, so the other things that they're looking at is one of which we had in Python and I'm really glad that the listener that you read the note from talked about the Python mm -hmm. tools in Visual Studio. We don't right. happen to use them um, for a couple of reasons, partially because some of the people that learned in IntelliJ that work on our teams don't like them very much. And so we don't actually use them. But not only are they there, but I expect they'll probably continue to get better mm. uh, going forward. Uh, IntelliJ is just is super brilliant, and I don't know that Visual Studio is quite caught up in terms of some things uh, like IntelliSense in a dynamic language, and I, I really haven't played with it that much, but I would encourage anybody who's interested in Python to definitely do that. Hmm. But one of the things we can do in Python is have tuple return values. And so what that means is that I have a function, and it returns two different things. 
So you can think of using this anytime you use an out parameter today. So if I want to return a status and a value or a X and a Y uh, point value, I can return that. And the, the current syntax is just to put that in curly brackets. And then you return those into two different variables. So we could previously return tuples and I could make a tuple and return a tuple and work with tuples. Have you guys ever done that? I have. Not in the CLR. I've done it in Postgres. Do you like tuples? Um, not really. I, yeah. I, I generally, <laughs> if, I'm, if I need two parameters out of something, I look at the architecture of my system and I think, you know, well, I should probably just add that field to the object that I'm returning. And so it usually is the right answer. I agree with you. So that there are places that you probably use out parameters in your code. And in those cases, you could use a tuple. I use a tuple a handful of times, but I find it to be a very awkward syntax mm. because the tuple recognizes its positions as item one, item two, item three. Yeah, and I, I mean, like literally item one, item two, and item three. I don't like ordinals so, anyway. <laughs> I'm sorry? I don't like ordinals anyway, like something that has to... Right. It's yeah. just ugly, yeah. right? Well, with the tuple return value, um, the tuple return, what's proposed there is it actually would go into each of those variables. So you could have an X and a Y variable, that an X and a Y value that was being returned, and the values would actually be put into those variables. So you could then work with them. And so it's a very nice syntax, but you already said what is overall my opinion on it, which is we had them in Python, and I was so excited because I always thought I'd want them. And right. we used them about maybe a dozen times, and all but about two of them we pulled out as being a mistake, that it was there was a better way to solve the problem in, if we stepped back and said, what else could we do here? There's a couple I think we left in, um, and so I do think it's occasionally going to be useful, but about like out parameters. You, you do, mm. use an out parameter after you've exhausted all your other options. And I do think it's nicer syntax than an out parameter. It's very easy to have that out parameter be way out at the end, maybe even cut off and not on your screen. Right. And all of a sudden you have some change going on that you can't see. Yeah. So I am very much dislike the syntax of out parameters. And this allows you to completely avoid that. And all out parameters could be handled as tuple values. So you may okay. never need an out parameter again. But I do think people will be way too excited about it. They'll use it way too much. And then they'll come back to say, yeah, there's a better way to do this. Yeah. I mean, when you realized that it was a mistake, what was the mistake part? Was this a debugging problem or, you know, a maintenance problem? What was the issue? It was almost always we had a function doing too much. I would right. say that 90 or more percent of the times we pulled it out, it was because we had a function that if properly named would have been do this and that. And we refactored to have two functions, one that was do this and the other that was do that. So that was what we wound up running into, is that when we had more data coming back, we almost always wanted to unwrap that mm. and make it two functions. Yeah. But um, it's fun. That's, you know, that's the big stuff. There's some other stuff they're doing that isn't, isn't really uh, nailed down enough for me to feel very comfortable talking about it. Mm. We may have a new, t a new type uh, called a record type which may be um, a sort of immutable by nature, data by nature kind of uh, limited purpose type that comes in that is in, C in F sharp. And a lot of people are very excited to get it. Uh, it's not nailed down yet enough that, that I feel like 
talking about it in much detail. And then there's other things that are in F-sharp, like algebraic data types, which are certainly, uh, the folks that are working on the language are certainly looking closely at those things. Yeah. I don't know that any of those are actually going to make it in at this point. I, I don't know where we'll go with those things. Yeah, because question number one is, tell me the difference between a record and a tuple. Well, they're, they're similar, but they're, a record is a little bit closer to a structure in that it has uh, named values and typed values, where a tuple has that silly ordinal, item one, item two. And to find your types, you have to go back to your declaration and look at what the generics were when you created the, t- the tuple. Right. I mean, if you put all a record type is, is a tuple type with labels on the ordinal positions. Pretty much. Uh, pretty much it's that, and it's a little easier to reason about the types that are within it. But it is, that's pretty much what you've got. Uh, but so, that's also yeah. kind of a structure. You know, it's, it's just a simple yeah. little thing. And record types are, are limited to, uh, to data. So they're, they're pretty, um, yeah, they're just simplified. And I think that's part of the reason it's not clear to me really what they bring to the language. But there are folks that think it's important to get them in. And those are folks, uh, some of which are from F sharp that do see a purpose. And like, you know, I figure they probably know what they're talking about on that. It's not as, as something that I'm as familiar with as some of the other features. Well, and you, and you know, the thing that we're coming up against, and this is an old programmer's problem is returns that look like a single thing, but are many things within it. Right. Right. Like you, if soon as you go down this path of a record type and right next to it's going to be the table type, mm. you're now mm-hmm. talking about labeled values with type inference on them. Mm-hmm. And then, it's, you know, there could be any number of them. Do you have to define it in advance or can you do it on the fly? How do you do that? How do you make those definitions? How do you enforce them? What does failure look like in it? And either way, it's all tough code to read. Right. And why not just use an array for that matter? I mean, what's so great about having a separate tuple or or record? Right. Well, if or you want to shoot yourself at a foot in the foot, just make it a string and pack some XML in there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's just go old school now. Well, well, I hope that we only get record types if they help us to unravel those problems instead of just right. making those problems harder to read. Because you're right, when we have temporary complex data, that is something that we don't handle brilliantly. Uh, historically, that that there's different ways we've done that, but none of them are particularly pretty. And if a record type becomes a pretty way to handle that problem, great, wonderful. Uh, but you can if see how we're feeling around on this, right? If I have to declare a record structure somewhere else in my app, then when some poor schmo is leading my line of code of this function returns this thing, he's, right. it's very tough to figure out what's this thing, why does it behave, you know, how does it work, and what does it, how does it fail. So, the, you know, you now you, you just inch down that line. Okay, it's not just a value. It's going to be a bunch of values. But don't worry. We don't have all the structure stuff around it. It's a tuple. It'll be fine. <laughs> don't worry. It's like, ah, but now I hate ordinal <laughs> position. Oh, okay. I'll give you labels, but we'll call it a record. But then these values are all different. Oh, wait. I'll give you some types. Well, it's a flipping structure again now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. And and I think that uh, I, I'm, I suspect if you had an F-sharp person, they could uh, get very clear and, and precise about the differences. And I'm afraid I can't. So uh, I, I'll leave that to someone else. To, to We'll figure this out if we get record types as it goes forward, because the same kind of detail that people can find today in the design notes about the features that are currently under active development. As soon as they're under active development, those same conversations will go on on records and if we get them algebraic data types and anything else they think of. 
Okay. Now, do we really want to talk about algebraic data types? I mean, no. this seems even no. worse. <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> No. So, should we uh, just say algebraic data types? There be dragons. Yeah. Well, I, I, one of the things I like about the team is that I feel like they work really hard at coming up to something where it's like, yeah, there might be dragons there, and diving in and figuring out how to make it not dragons and mm -hmm. hopefully not do the feature if it's going to be a dragon feature. I mean, there was a time that generics was a feature. That it was like, there be dragons there. That yes. is hard to implement, hard to teach, hard to do. And would any of us still be programming in Visual Basic or C Sharp if we didn't have generics? So it's, uh, I think that's the job of the, of the team. And now they're reaching out and allowing more people feedback to that. But it's their job to go into those places where there's dragons and either decide we're not going there. Or decide this is how we'll go there and we'll put the dragons on a leash or we'll turn the dragons into nice little cute little iguanas or something. But that's, I feel like they've done a pretty good job over the years and uh, hopefully we won't get algebraic data types in a way that's big and scary and hard, but we'll get them if they do something for us that help us as C-sharp developers. If we wanted all that stuff, we could just go to F-sharp. So when it comes yep. to C-sharp, I think it's important to bring it in in a way that is sensible for C-sharp and not be trying to chase F-sharp because it's cool. It's totally cool. I, you know, all my F-sharp friends, you're totally cool. I love you all. But uh, <laughs> C-sharp, <laughs> C-sharp is just a different language with a different audience. Now, wait a second now. we When we say C-sharp 7, let's say, you know, these new features of Roslyn, we are also talking about other languages, right? I mean, are, are all of these features we're talking about specific to C Sharp 7, or are they also available to VB 15? So the, the current, the, the reason I'm talking so much about, about C Sharp here is that the current design notes are about C Sharp. And uh, there, I haven't recently seen many design notes on things that the Visual Basic team is doing first. The way they're handling their joint development is some features go first in C-sharp and some go first in Visual Basic. And then each team looks at the ones that the other was working on and says, yes, that makes sense for us, or no, that doesn't make sense for us. And okay. so sometimes much later, so we got uh, the um, conditional exceptions in C Sharp 6, where it's been in Visual Basic, I think since Visual Basic 5 or way back there. So each team keeps looking at that. So the Visual Basic team is going to look at every single thing that I talked about, every single thing in the design notes for C Sharp, and decide which of those makes sense in Visual Basic. At the same time, there is work going on in Visual Basic um, that I just have, they don't have design notes that are as, as easy to find and read and understand and have conversations about the Visual Basic team is doing. Uh, I think those people may be a little bit more tied into what's going on with the IDE and how to improve that kind of stuff. But then what's appropriate there will also push back to C Sharp. So that's how the two are going forward together, almost the same, except where it doesn't make sense in the core language. And all of these conversations are going on in the Rosalind GitHub repository. Well, there's, you know, these people go to work. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of meetings they have that we don't see. Uh, but yes. I think they're hmm. doing a really good job to bring that out and let us watch the important things. I mean, we get the summary. If we had every single conversation that went on, 
we couldn't possibly make any sense of that. So yeah. um, I think it's a pretty good balance right now. Um, obviously, they get behind sometimes, and I would prefer to see them have a monthly post instead of a, I think we went from November to February without a post. So, you know, it's obviously the process can be tuned. Honestly, it's great that it's on GitHub because we know it's attached to the active development, but GitHub is a terrible way to be having this conversation because we have this summary and then we have just all of these comments that are not threaded. And so yeah. they're not related back to specific features. So I do hope that over time, uh, a better mechanism is going to come up for this public dialogue when we realize that there may be hundreds of people that are weighing in on these issues and there's not an easy way to vote. There's not an easy way to do the simple things that people might come in wanting to do. But it's a, it's great that yeah. it's in the open. That's step one. It's out there. Yeah, it's all well and fine when there's seven comments, but when there's 170, there's a problem. Is there only 170? I thought it was more than that. <laughs> only 170, yeah. yes. <laughs> all right. Well, Kathleen, this is awesome. Obviously, we could go on and on, and people can get a hold of you at Kathleen Dollard on Twitter, right? Yes, absolutely. That's a, where I do most of my talking these days. All right. And uh, it's great to talk to you as always. Thanks again, and I can't wait. Okay. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a